going to get started here. If you guys were uh, grieved last week with how fast we went through the Minor Prophets, I was grieved more. It was like, what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians where he talks about the painful letter he wrote? He's like, if you guys were pain in receiving it, I was pained more. It's like, it's a good representation of what it was. So, I'm not a big fan of doing 10 books in, in one day. But, I already added another week onto what I was initially supposed to do, and I already set aside one week to do just Daniel, and I added one to do Isaiah, so I was like, I need, something's going to get shortchanged here, so the Minor Prophets were rushed. Um, there's plenty of great resources if you want to study those more. I'd be more than happy to, to point you to some good books or some good um, sermons on, on those if you want. This morning, what we're going to do, we just have three books. That's much more my happy place, just doing three. Um, we're going to do Job, Psalms, and Ruth. Obviously, with something like the Psalms, we're not, we're not going to cover every, we're not going to all 150. That's not what we're doing. Um, just kind of give you some big picture of what's going on in the Psalms and then Ruth, we're actually going to start with Ruth, because I think I can get through it relatively quickly, haha, <laughs> um, and then we'll, we'll circle back to Ruth, Job, and then Psalms. So, we'll start with Ruth, that'll be on the, the back page there of your handouts if you want it. Before we do that, let's pray. Lord, thank you for just this morning that we were able to wake up, get out of bed, um, see the, the sunshine and the cold air and just be able to come together as your people. Lord, I pray just for this morning that you would bless the ministry of your word now in equipping hour, and as we move towards the worship service, um, the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray together, um, the scriptures that we read together, and the sermon that we listen to and respond to. I pray that you would be with us, that your spirit would move. I pray just for this time now, as we look to Job, Psalms, and Ruth, that we would see your glory we would understand your word for what it is, and that it would change our hearts and our desires to be more conformed to the image of your son. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. So start with Ruth. So that's going to be on the, the back page of your notes there. I've got to turn there myself. Ruth is so good. I mean, we named our daughter Ruth for a reason. Ruth is so good. Ruth is like, Ruth is like the, the wonderful love story of the Bible. It's, it's so good. It's like all the Disney princess movies are just rip-offs of Ruth. I'm like, they can't beat Ruth. Um, like Boaz is the real Prince Charming. He's the man. Um, great guy. I mean, I think more people would be named Boaz if it wasn't just kind of an ugly name. Uh, it's not exactly the most flattering. Um, so... Yeah, that's what's going on there. Ruth and Boaz. Let me get the first slide up here. Oh. There we go. Yeah, so the book of Ruth. And you really see this. You can see this up on the screen here. This is from the Legacy Standard Translation, which I, I really like. They try to be really pretty wooden and literal. And you see that in verse 1 there. Now, it happened in the days when the judges judged. And I think I mentioned this a while back. That's really the setting for the book of Ruth, okay? I mean, the author is cluing us in right off the bat that this book is supposed to be viewed in light of the horribleness of Judges, okay? If you guys remember the book of Judges, I mean, it is filled with sin, right? I mean, there is 
murder, there is rape, there is just extensive sin. And the point of Judges, as you see as the, the author puts it in there, is that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that Israel needs a righteous king. And there, there isn't one. And so Ruth is set in that context. Now, what you could call Ruth, and this I'm just stealing from my professor, Ruth is kind of like the diamond against the black backdrop of Judges. You know, like you see these diamond commercials. They never put like a diamond, and you know, it's like, well, maybe they do, I don't know. But you don't put like the diamond, and then it's like the ocean is behind it, because the diamond doesn't stand out as much, right? Because it blurs in with the ocean. You always put the diamond up against, you know, like something really dark, and the diamond really pops, right? And that's kind of what's going on with Ruth. Like, it pops out, the, the glories of it and the goodness of it, in light of the horribleness of Judges, okay? And that's what the author, I think, is cluing us in right at the beginning. In the days when the judges judged, there was a famine in the land. And if you guys remember Deuteronomy, we, we've talked about this a lot in Leviticus, right? If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. Well, one of those curses is food problems. There's a famine in the land. In light of everything going on in Judges, these covenant curses have come upon them. There's a famine in the land, curses for disobedience. And so kind of the structure I have going on here is you can kind of put it as a five-act play, right? We've kind of got these, these five acts going on here. So you, you see in verse 4, right, um, Elimelech, or Elimelech, however you want to pronounce it, you know, he dies. I mean, it's a bleak picture. I mean, if you guys remember Ruth, like, it just starts out, you know, everyone's dying, and Naomi is like, I don't even want to, just call me bitter, Blah, life is horrible, and it's just like, oh my goodness. Um, Ruth starts out really bleak. And you have this here in verse 4, they took for themselves Moabite women. Do you guys remember where Moab comes from, or where the Moabites come from? Anyone? Anyone? From Lot, yeah. And so it's actually, I mean, if you guys remember that account there of uh, Lot and his daughters, we're not going to go into it, but it's not good. And uh, it's, uh, it's pretty bad. And the Moabites are not seen as this wonderful people, in fact, the Jews, when they call someone, you know, a Moabite, it's a derogatory term. Not good. Not good people. And I, I think this is important when you come to Ruth. It's not that everyone loves Ruth. Like, oh, Ruth is just an amazing person. No, really the only person who loves Ruth is Boaz, okay? They're all, you know, she's a Moabite, and she's, you know, not this amazing person. Boaz is the only one who really, really loves her. You continue on, so you see Act 1 here, Ruth's loyalty, we're not going to read this. We're going to move through pretty quick. But Ruth has hope, right? Um, she trusts in uh, the Lord. She has complete loyalty to Yahweh. She even uses his personal name. You know, where you go, he's talk, she's talking with Naomi, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your God will be my God. So she, she's completely trusting. You could say she's converting to Yahweh. And you have Act 2, Naomi and Ruth enter Bethlehem. That's where Naomi says, call me bitter. You know, my, my life is so rough. And it is. I mean, it really is a life of sorrow, and she's wallowing in her misery. Then you have Act 3, where, where Boaz is introduced, right? You see this in, in chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a mighty man of excellence. And that's a significant phrase, because we actually see that all the time in the book of Judges, where, where a judge is referred to a, a mighty man. And now here, the author of Ruth, again, already setting this up in the context of Judges, is saying, Oh, here's a guy, his name's going to be Boaz, 
and he is on par, actually I would say greater, with some of those judges. This is a mighty man. He is a good guy of the family of Elimelech. And so he has a chance to redeem uh, um, Ruth and Naomi from their, their sorrow. He can buy them back. He's a, a mighty man, a true and better judge, you might say. And I love this in verse 3. I think I have it up there. Yeah. The ESV has something a little bit different. Um, but I, I really like this. So she went, uh, you know, Ruth is saying, I'm going to go glean in the, in the fields. You know, I'm going to get the leftovers. And Naomi says, go, my daughter, get out of here. So she went. And she came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And it so happened that she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. You see how in there it has happened twice? I, like, this is the Bible's way of saying it didn't just happen. This isn't just like, oh, what a coincidence. She just stumbled upon the field of Boaz. No, like, this is the Bible's way of saying this ain't no chance. No, this is God sovereignly bringing her there. You see that same word in, in Hebrew twice. It so happened that she happened to come to the portion of this field. And the reason why this ain't no coincidence, we're going to see later on, but if this doesn't happen, if she doesn't meet Boaz, we have no David, we have no Jesus, we have no salvation. Oh, okay, that's pretty significant, <laughs> right? Because Boaz and Ruth are in that line. They're in that line with the genealogy that this picks up with. So this is the Bible's way of saying not a coincidence, okay? Chapter 3, um, you kind of see this act 4, the plan for aid. People do some interesting stuff with this chapter. Um, I would argue Ruth is not being scandalous, okay? I mean, if you read chapter 3, it's like, whoa, what's kind of what's going on here? She's being bold and risky. Um, she's saying to Boaz, hey, I'm available for marriage. Um, but she's not being sexually promiscuous, okay? Um, she, she's being very bold and risky. I mean, she doesn't know what could happen. Boaz could say no, right? She could bring serious shame upon, uh, you know, her name and her family. Uh, Boaz could take advantage of her. I mean, there's, there's, she puts herself in a very risky position, okay? But she's not being scandalous. And you see, Boaz is an amazing man, and he loves her, and he redeems her in Act 5, Chapter 4. What's going on here is it's, it's a complex Old Testament law case, okay? Um, we, we don't have time to get in all the specifics of this, and that's partly because I don't even know all the specifics of this. Um, if you want to see, the, the main two laws that are going on here are found in Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25, having to do with property redemption and leveret marriage. And so Boaz puts himself out on a limb, basically he's willing to lose a lot in order to get Ruth. He loves Ruth, and he's saying, hey, I'll lose all this, you know, I'll lose, you know, maybe my honor and my name, because he wants the girl. And so he goes out on a limb, and it's actually, you know, it's like in Judges, like no one lives happily ever after. Like Ruth, they live happily ever after. Like This is great. This is awesome. They get married, they have a son, and all this good stuff. It's the only Old Testament book to end with the genealogy, okay? Typically, if you look at, you know, Genesis or Chronicles, they always start with the genealogy. They start with, you know, here's the descendants of so-and-so, so-and-so. And at the end here, you guys see this. If you look at um, chapter 4, verse 17, 
And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. 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 I think it's probably Salmon, but I like saying Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And so the book ends clearly with a, hey, this is God's covenant plan of redemption. Nothing has changed. Ruth is just this amazing, beautiful story, and this is how God is going to bring uh, his seed to fruition. He's going to move through. It's amazing. It's a good book, right? This this is beautiful stuff. Guys, if you don't like, you know, chick flicks, you need to like this one because it's in the Bible, okay? It's It's the only inspired chick flick, okay? So you need to love the book of Ruth. Okay, so that's Ruth. We'll look at Job. We'll look at Job. So turn back. Yes. Leviticus 25, and then Deuteronomy 25, and that's going to be leveret marriage and then property redemption, laws dealing with those two things. Because, yeah, um, there's a complex deal that Boaz makes, you know, in the city gates where deals would be done. And so, yeah, you see that in, in uh, Ruth 4. And, yeah, he's just drawing from um, case law in, Levitic- in um, yeah, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Yeah, so Job. Book of Job. Let me turn there as well. Book of Job. By the way, if you guys are still listening to the uh, YouTube lectures, Shriner's lecture on Job is really good. If you haven't listened to one, listen to that one. His lecture on Job is really, really good, really helpful. Um, so I just recommend that one. Job is written, I would argue, very early. Okay, I would argue that Job is actually written before Moses writes the Pentateuch. Okay, now that's not saying that the events of Job happened before the Pentateuch, because like Genesis one is like the creation of everything, so obviously it can't happen before that. Sometimes people freak out when they're like, when they when they argue for an early authorship of Job and they think it's the first book written of the Bible, they're like, that's not possible, like Genesis 1, 1. And it's like, hey, I'm not saying those things didn't happen. I'm saying those happen, but Moses is writing the Pentateuch well after those events happened, right? And so Job, especially by the language, especially the Hebrew, you know you're good at Hebrew if you can translate Job, okay? I can't, yeah, that, I'm horrible um, at Hebrew. Like you can, you can, like Roman can probably work through like the first couple chapters, like me and him, we can read our way through, and then you get to like chapter three, and it's just like, I have no idea what's going on. I, I don't know. It's very old Hebrew, okay? It's very complicated. It's, it's difficult, okay? So I would argue it's probably the first book written. And the, the setting of Job would be the days of, like, Abraham, right? So, like, Genesis uh, 12, right? The days of Abraham. And you kind of have Abraham acting as, like, a warrior king, and he's this, you know, patriarch. He's a uh, Gentile, too. I mean, he's, he's this, the start of Israel, right? comes from different foreign land. And so I think that's the setting of Job, the days of the patriarchs. Same thing with the author. We don't know who the author of Job is, okay? One argument is that it might be um, Elihu or Elihu who shows up in Job 32. Um, And I, I think it actually has some potential because Elihu is this really mysterious figure, okay? He, he shows up in Job 32, and people 
um, don't know if whether we should view him as good or as like a, a maybe he's a bad guy. Um, I think he's a mixture of both, but generally speaking, I would say he's a good guy. And he kind of shows up with this kind of like cameo appearance, uh, appearance, right? He shows up, he's, his introduction of who he is is the longest one, second only to Job, right? Um, so he's a significant character, but he's mysterious, you know, in terms of his, you know, where is he coming from and what's he doing here? I think we should view him as good because at the end of Job, when God rebukes Job's three friends, he doesn't rebuke Elihu. He's not mentioned in the rebuke. So it seems that he's probably, we should see him probably as a, as a good guy, um, to make it simple. And I think also, you kind of see this in the New Testament, like authors of books kind of have an interesting way of saying, hey, I wrote this book, right? So like John in the Gospel of John, he never calls himself, you know, I, John, wrote this book. What does he say? You know, the apostle whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he refers to himself. And then you have like, like the gospel, like my personal favorite is uh, the gospel of Mark, right? You've got all this, you know, going on. Here's the gospel. And then all of a sudden, it's just like this random verse. And it's just like, and there was a guy and uh, someone grabbed his cloak and he ran away naked. And it just like moves on. And you're like, wait, what in the world? Like naked dude, like what? And I think what's going on there is Mark is saying, hey, I was there because only a guy like me knows that someone ran away naked, okay? Like, that, those, are pretty some, those are some personal details, right? And so that's Mark's way of saying, hey, I wrote the, the gospel of Mark. I think you kind of see that with Elihu or Elihu. I think he's kind of jumping in, kind of making a cameo appearance, and he's possibly the one who wrote the book, okay? So that's just fun stuff. It doesn't really change the meaning of the book a ton, but that's what I think. Could I be wrong? Sure, but I might not be. Um, the setting, purpose, uh, the purpose is this, God and the problem of evil, okay? That's the theme, theodicy. You, you'll see that in philosophy classes and stuff like that. How do we deal with this issue? And more than that, Job shows the necessity of divine revelation, that you need revelation from God to understand what is going on in the world. And even then, you won't understand everything but you need God's wisdom. Man, in and of himself, cannot figure it all out. You need wisdom from God, which you could kind of say with Job is, is God's righteousness or his rightness, you could say is maybe like on trial. Is God just? Is he righteous? And that's what's going on. It's kind of the central theme of, of mystery, of God's providence and the wonder, and the wonder of God. So Job 1, turn there if you're not there already. Job 1, and here's the setting. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This is interesting. That same language of one who feared God and turned away from evil, Solomon picks that up in the book of Proverbs, right? He says, to, to you know, the, the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God is to, is to fear him and to turn away from evil. You see that in Proverbs chapter 3, and I think you see it... Um, in several other places. Solomon's just going back to who Job was, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And it's language very similar to, to Abraham, how Abraham is introduced. So, um, and some of the vocab also alludes back to that, which is why we would argue for 
an early date of Job. You see in uh, verse 6, follow along with me here. Chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God, these angelic beings, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? What's amazing in this is the text is very clearly showing that God is completely in control of all the situation. He's the one initiating everything. Satan just responds, right? The sons of God are, are coming before him, and you know it's, it's kind of language of like standing at attention. They're obeying God. He says, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Verse 8, and the Lord said to Satan, this is so significant for understanding Job, have you considered my servant Job? Who's the one who brings up Job? God. God is the one who brings up Job. That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so that's the setting. So God brings up Job and Satan is saying, Ah, he's going to curse you. It's like, okay, let's give it a try. And so what you have here, down through verse, uh, starting in verse 13, right? You have this language of uh, Job's prosperity being taken away and his children, right? So verse 15, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants. Verse 16, while he was still speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell. Notice this word fell, okay? It's really significant. Sabians fell, fire of God fell. Come down, verse 19. Behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, right? So his children. You see this succession of this fell, this fell, this fell. Verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell. And it's kind of like in this moment that, like, is he going to curse God? He fell. What's going to happen? And look how he responds. He fell on the ground and worshiped. No, he responds, rightly, he trusts in the Lord. He said, naked I uh, came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. It's amazing. In all of this, he does not sin. He trusts in the Lord. I mean, later on in the book, there's definitely some, some language where he, he does sin, and he goes uh, above and beyond um, with what he's ascribing to God and what he says of himself. But here, in all this, he did not sin. Um, I, I think it's, it's, it's worth it to stop here because Job is a book to master, you know, in terms of dealing with sorrow and, um, you know, sin, um, the, the problem of evil when you see disease come to loved ones or just the, the hard struggles of life. I mean, look at what Job does. Like, he weeps. Biblically, it's okay to weep. It's okay to be sorrowful, to grieve. But you also see, what does Job do? He grieves and he worships. He trusts in the Lord. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. He says, blessed be the name of the Lord. So he's sorrowful over his circumstances, but he still trusts in the Lord. So then you have chapter 2, and uh, you know it's, 
I've always, I've always just like, man, this guy's wife. 2 verse 9, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Just like, man, sheesh, lady. <laughs> that is rough. Like, I mean, if Job had any reason to complain and be sorrowful, like, I mean, I, I, put yourself in that situation. Like, if your spouse says that to you, I mean, that would crush you. I mean, it's horrible. But he still trusts in the Lord. Then you have his three friends show up. Kind of see that point B there, dialogue with friends, okay? And that's kind of the, the, the main section of this book, okay? Chapters 3, kind of till like 37, 38. The dialogue with his friends, okay? I think I have a, a slide. Yeah, let me put it up. Um, Job's friends, this is from Jim Hamilton. He's really good. He's got some really good stuff. I'd recommend his book. He has a book called God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment. Really, really good book. He goes through the whole Bible, and he goes book by book. Um, kind of arguing that the central theme of the Bible is God's glory in salvation through judgment. And uh, really, really good. And he says this, Job's friends are not caricatures. Their arguments are not presented as those of straw men. They make real attempts to understand and explain what has happened to Job. And at points, they make true statements. In other words, Job's friends are not stupid. Okay? They're actually very, very smart. And, and they're probing Job with these questions, and they're trying to understand what's going on, and they're trying to give solutions. However, this is key, theirs is a mental universe in which a strict equation between justice and retribution exists with no room for mercy, no room for mystery, and no room for Yahweh, who shows his glory in both justice and mercy. And so basically what you could say is that they always arrive at the wrong answers because they're not coming from a biblical worldview. They do not come from a biblical worldview. They're trying to answer this question with logic apart from God's revelation and man's wisdom. Again, if you go back to that central theme, you need, you need God's wisdom to understand this world while they're operating from, hey, can we, can mankind in our wisdom, can we understand everything? Can we figure it out? And the answer is no. No, they cannot. So you have three rounds of debate. Okay, I didn't put this whole structure out, um, but what you have in all these chapters is you have this series of Eliphaz, one of his friends, he talks and says something, Job responds. Okay, then you have Bildad, Job responds. And then you have Zophar, and Job responds. Okay, and you do that three times, except for on the third one, Zophar doesn't respond. He doesn't get a response. I don't know why, but he doesn't. Maybe he was just like, okay, I can't say anything else. I only get two rounds. Okay, but, but he only gets two. Okay, but you have those three rounds of um, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. But in between, you know, Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, so far, does that make sense? That's the structure of what's going on there, okay? You have, I want to spend a little bit of time on this, Job 28. Turn there real quick, Job 28. This is a really fascinating chapter. There's a really good sermon here for someone to preach eventually. Job 28. It's kind of this like chapter on like mining, okay? You see that in Job 28 verse 1. Surely there's a mine for silver and a place for gold. They refine. He continues on. Uh, man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He's talking about how mankind can, can search out caves and caverns and, and find treasure and all this stuff. But then he says in verse 12, this is Job speaking, Job 28, verse 12, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Verse 13, man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. 
It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir and precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. So he's saying, you can't buy wisdom. None of this stuff even comes close to it. Verse 20, from where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it and established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Isn't that interesting? To turn away from evil is understanding. That's how Job's described in Job chapter 1. And so he is someone who's trying to, to understand and fear the Lord. And that is the beginning of wisdom. So where can wisdom be found? Well, Job's three friends, they can't find it because it starts in the fear of the Lord. He is the one who has access to wisdom. He is the one who knows all things, and he knows what is wise and what is right. You can't truly figure out anything in life apart from God and his revelation. You need God to reveal his truth, and that's why Scripture is so important for us. You have Elihu. Again, like I said, he shows up in Job 32. He kind of has a longer introduction he says some good stuff in there. Uh, flip over to Job 38. Job 38. Actually, the slide's up there. We'll, we'll get there. But Job 38 is finally when God shows up. Okay. God shows up, Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. It's like, oh, man. I don't want God to say that to me. <laughs> like, whoa, hey, you've been, you don't know what you're talking about. Gird yourself for action like a man. And then pretty much what you have is he's just pummeling him with questions that he cannot answer. Job is like, I, I, I can't, I, I don't have the answer. I don't have the wisdom. Only God does. You don't know Job, but God does. You jump over to chapter 40. You have here uh, behemoth and Leviathan, okay? And so I actually don't know what, like, traditional interpretation would be. I always grew up just thinking it was, like, uh, dinosaurs. Um, it could be. I, I don't want to make light of that. It, it very much could be. I think with the language that's going on, especially with Leviathan, is it's probably not just referring to, like, a dragon, okay, or a dinosaur, okay? I think what's going on, and, again, I could be wrong. Um, I've had a couple professors talk to me about this, and I'm like, okay, I think they actually have a good point. Um, if you look at how Leviathan is described, he's, he's not just some normal creature, okay? I think what you have going on here is, maybe you could say this, it's satanic power or satanic, a satanic being, Satan himself, being described in symbolic language, and God saying only he is the one. I mean, if you look at 41, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope around his neck and all this stuff? right? Um, basically, what God is saying there is, I am the only one who can control even Satan. 
and I am going to use him exactly as I want to use him. It's actually really encouraging if you think about it like that. I think it also fits in nicely because in the beginning of Job, you have Satan as like kind of like a prominent character, right? And he's talking and saying all this stuff. By the end, Satan ain't saying nothing. He's not at the end of the book. He, he's, he's speechless. He doesn't appear because God controls him. He has everything over him. So that's what I would argue. Behemoth, I think, is probably referring to, you know, creaturely strength as a whole. So it, what I would say is behemoth might be referring to the strength of creatures as a whole. And God has the wisdom to control all of them. And then probably with Leviathan is, you know, spiritual powers as a whole. So that's, you, can, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, continue on, Job 42. Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, this is Job speaking, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And Job is saying, I was wrong. I spoke of things too eloquent for me. I don't have all the answers. God, you do. I trust in you. I despise myself, repent in dust and ashes. I, I love that line. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Um, if you like Dominion and Dynasty, um, that little book, New Studies in Biblical Theology, there's actually two books on Job. I haven't read them, so I can't endorse everything in them. Um, but there's one book called Now My Eyes Have Seen You, um, which is about Job. And then there's also one called Piercing Leviathan, um, which is, I think, dealing with behemoth and Leviathan. So if you're a nerd like me and you want to read nerdy books, start there. Those will be good. Okay. Uh, you have the end here. I, I messed up the verses here. Job gains everything, kind of this epilogue. It should start, start in verse 7, not 10. Um, this is where the Lord rebukes Job's friends. Again, um, Elihu's not mentioned here, okay? So I, I, I think the Lord sees him in a positive light in the book of Job. Uh, the Lord restores his fortunes, um, says at the end, Job dies an old man full of days. That language is really rare, old man full of days. You actually see it with Abraham and I think David, and maybe one other place. But so that's why I think another reason why it's going back to like the days of the patriarchs, because um, it's, it's language like, like Abraham. Um, so, yeah, you see there are theological themes, suffering and sovereignty. Job is key to understanding that. There's no indication in the book that Job found out what was happening, right? There's no indication that he learned, oh, this is what God is doing in my life. He's, he's using my life to demonstrate the superiority of God's wisdom, that you need God to speak. We need his insight. And with the hidden wisdom of God, I had to put, I was, I was like, man, do I do this? There's a meme about the book of Job that I really like, and so I have to put it up here. It's just so good. A friend of mine sent it to me. I think it'll play. But if you can see it up there, it says, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And it says Job in heaven reading the book of Job, and he's like, what? And so that's Doc Rivers, the coach of the Clippers. It's, it's just a good meme. It's just a good meme, so I had to put it up. Um, but it also illustrates something that I think is, is true. I'll move on to, to the Psalms here. But it, it's funny, right? But I think with, in thinking about God's providence, a, a professor said this once. He's like, God's providence is like Hebrew. You can only read it backwards. 
So if you guys know, it's the language of Hebrew. You don't read it left to right. You read it right to left. You read it backwards. And God's providence is kind of like that, okay? We don't understand everything until, I mean, I don't know about you guys, sometimes you go through trials and suffering in your life, and in the moment, you're like, this makes absolutely no sense. You've got a face like Doc Rivers, just like, what is going on, right? But then afterwards, maybe, you know, five years later, you're like, man, I, I totally see what God was doing in that moment. I totally see. I, I've grown in my sanctification. I've, you know, I've seen a side of God's glory I haven't understood before. But I think also, you know, now we see in part, I think when we get to heaven, then we will actually fully understand everything. And I think that's when we will kind of have a face like, like that meme of like, what? But also like, oh, it makes sense. Like, this is what God was doing in my life. So some comic relief, but I think it's also a good point. So Psalms, Psalms real quick. Got about 10 minutes or so. Psalms, John, what's that? I think Sinclair Ferguson said it, but he maybe got it from someone else. I don't know. Yeah. Yep. Pretty much everything I'm saying, I'm plagiarizing from professors from studying the Bible. So don't take anything as, wow, Caleb's really sharp. No, a lot of this, I mean, it's just reading the Bible and learning from some, some godly men who have read it as well. It's in the Psalms. This is good. The Psalms are, this is from John Calvin, the Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the soul, for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. When the Psalms are a book to treasure, uh, go to them every season, every emotion. You can find a Psalm to help you treasure them, read through them, pray through them together with your friends. Um, Kind of date, author, setting, purpose. I'm just going to go through that really quick. You got a lot of variety. Okay, you've got a lot of psalms being written by a lot of different people. Okay, David writes. Um, I want to say probably 75, like pretty much half. You have uh, Solomon writes one. Moses writes one. Um, I think it's Psalm 90, um, Psalm of Moses. So one of the uh, oldest portions of Scripture we have. Sons of Korah, Ethan the Ezraite. Like I don't know who that is, but he wrote a psalm. Uh, Asaph. At some point, I just want to touch on this real quickly, at some point the Psalms were compiled together, okay? And you see this very clearly, like there's multiple books, right? You're reading through Psalms, and it's like, oh, book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. So at some point, and this just makes sense, right? If you have Moses writing one, then hundreds of years, David, a hundred years later, David's writing a bunch. At some point, someone's got to be putting these things all together, right? And actually giving them shape. I don't think it's a coincidence that there's, there's five books to the Psalms and there's five books in the Pentateuch. Uh, I think they're pointing back to that and there's actually some flow to the Psalms, how they're compiled together. But I think you have someone probably like Ezra, um, maybe, you know, obviously under, you know, the inspiration of God putting these books together in the Psalms that we have. Um, broadly, I would say this, you have a general movement from lament to praise. Okay, so, so a general flow through the psalms. Of course, you're going to find exceptions to that rule. But generally speaking, more lament psalms at the beginning, sorrow, sorrowful psalms, and then towards the end, moving towards praise, okay? I want to put up some of these quotes here from um, some professors. This is good. The first two Davidic collections, he's talking about the first two books of the psalms, um, so 1 to 41, 42 to 72, cover episodes from David's life, though not in chronological order. So the first two books are filled with Davidic psalms, okay? So a lot of David. 
But the great hopes for David's descendants expressed in Psalm 72, which I want to get to really quick, Psalm 72 is amazing, were apparently shattered by the fall of Jerusalem and the monarchy, talking about the exile, events alluded to in many Psalms of Book 3 and most explicitly in Psalm 89. However, Books 4 and 5 respond to Psalm 89's lament with the call to trust in the Lord's rule, not in human rulers. So there's some movement there. Jim Hamilton, the Psalms then recount the history of Israel from David to the exile, and then they look beyond the exile to the new David, Jesus, the Messiah, who will arise and lead the people back to the land. The story of Israel's past and the expressions of hope for her future are centered on the glory of God and salvation through judgment. So I'm going to jump now to Psalm 72. So turn there. Look, we've got five minutes. Psalm 72. This is, I wanted to talk about this in Zechariah last week, but it's okay. We can talk about it now because um, it's, all, it's all fitting together. Psalm 72 is a massively uh, significant psalm. <laughs> and the reason why is that it's hitched to the Davidic covenant. Okay, we talked about the Davidic covenant. What chapter is that in? Anyone know? Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7. Okay, just remember that. I have failed. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, Davidic covenant. That's where it's from. You don't need to memorize the whole chapter. I don't have it all memorized, but I know where it is. You need to be able to go, oh, hey, this is where God is promising all these things, okay? 2 Samuel 7. And in this passage here in Psalm 72, it's significant that the author is Solomon, okay? Solomon, the son of David. Now, what I wanted to um, talk about here is that Psalm 72, Solomon, he's hitching together the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, and he's saying, this is God's still, uh, you could say, this is God, still God's plan of redemption. Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant. There's still going to be one who rules on the throne. Um, God's people are going to multiply. Israel's going to be blessed in the land, okay? And I put this up here. I don't know if you guys remember this from 1 Kings chapter 4. This is talking about um, Solomon's reign and how amazing it is. And he's alluding back to the promises in the Abrahamic covenant, that there's going to be a lot of land, there's going to be a great many descendants of David, um, and God is going to bless the kingdom, okay? Do you see some of these connections? I tried to highlight them a little differently. So Solomon, 1 Kings 4 is describing the rule of Solomon. Psalm 72 is authored by Solomon. Solomon is writing this, okay? Psalm 72, verse 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So Solomon is pointing forward to another king. And he's basing it, if you see the purple, right? Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. I would argue, because sometimes you can come to 1 Kings 4 and it's like, hey, are the promises fulfilled? Is this the kingdom? Is this the son of David? Is it Solomon who's going to rule and it's going to be an amazing kingdom? Well, Psalm 72, which is written by Solomon, I think Solomon is saying no. Because he's saying another king is going to reign and his dominion isn't just going to be you know, from the Euphrates to the border of Egypt. It's going to be from the river Euphrates to the ends of the earth. This king, his kingdom is going to be even greater. And you see, there's even more links, right? In 1 Kings 4, they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Well, Solomon in Psalm 72 is saying, May the kings of Tarshish and all the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. Okay? He's saying there's going to come another day, even greater than this, when the, when the peoples of the earth will come to this king 
May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. It's not just going to be a reigning over Israel. You see that? It's going to be all the nations. And so Solomon is going back to 1 Kings 4 and saying, this is still yet to come. It has not been fulfilled. This is amazing. Um, This is again Psalm 72. I just moved it over to the left. Zechariah, which we looked at last week very, very quickly. Remember that passage? Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Where do we see that picked up in the New Testament? Right, Jesus, right? The triumphal entry. He comes in, okay? Okay, he's referring back to Zechariah. But notice, look at verse 10. Zechariah picks up the same language of Solomon. His rule, the one who comes, you know, mounted on a donkey, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The exact same wording of Solomon. So Zechariah is still pointing forward to yet a coming king and yet another day. And look at this also. This is, again, Psalm 72. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Remember those passages we looked at in Isaiah? Where they're pointing forward to the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I think the prophets are reading 1 Kings 4 and they're reading Psalm 72. And they're saying the kingdom that was promised has not yet come. The kingdom that we are awaiting where the Messiah will reign over the earth and all the nations will flow to him, we're still waiting for it. And I think with the uh, writers of the gospel, of the gospels, when they go back to Zechariah 9 and say, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and they don't quote that other section, they're saying, we're still waiting for that. Does that make sense? We're still waiting for that kingdom. We're still waiting for the day when Jesus reigns on his throne. So Psalm 72, that is an amazing psalm to compare with some of these passages we've looked at. Um, There's more I could say, but we're out of time. So if you have more questions about the Psalms or Job or Ruth, let me know. We've only got four weeks left. So we'll look at the the writings of Solomon next week. That'll be fun. Um, So Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Song of Songs. And then we'll pick back up, spend some time in Daniel, and then finish the Old Testament. You're dismissed.